Well, good morning. My name is Jason. Some of you are new. I have the strange honor of having a very old friend in the room, a former intern of mine from Houston, also a terminal Argentina soccer fan, which takes some real explaining. How? Uh, never mind. Um, this is uh, this. These are this is a tough week. I want to begin by naming a few things that I won't get perfectly correct for you and us. I'm terrified to do it. Didn't get it right at the 9.30. Don't particularly like the weight of being a white guy at the center of a spiritual community that now has to somehow say what happened to us, happened to us this week. But here's what I can do uh, is I can encourage you and us to listen deeply now and not to white preachers. It's how we get ourselves sideways all the time. Um, you know, it's never attractive to watch anyone gloat, and so there's been a lot to tune out this week for some of you. For some of you, this may be the greatest thing that ever happened. I don't know. You're welcome here either way. Here's what I can tell you is I'm raising five beautiful, amazing divine daughters, and this was a hurtful week. And uh, when it seems that we are now target, which is not an easy thing as a white, straight guy to ever feel, but it feels like somebody's coming after us, and so my instinct is let's listen to the black church now. Let's listen to gay Christians. Let's listen to the indigenous church that's been fighting for dignity forever. Let's learn survival skills now and how to regroup and rethink. Let's learn how to raise our kids now from people um, who we may not have listened to as deeply in the past. And I don't know if this resonates with you if I'm messing this up. I don't love being pastors on weeks like this. This is a strangely public little pulpit, and I feel like we have to say some things, but you're not going to see me on social media on weeks like this. Guys, we knew it was coming. We heard, we saw the leak. We knew it was coming. You could feel it. You could feel it if you rolled your windows down. It was just, and so listen to each other, love each other deeply right now. Women, you're not half a person. Your body is not the arena in which other people need to legally experiment and play. It's disgusting. It's sick. And it's been our history. And I'm sorry. And I don't know how to fix it except to fix it at the kitchen table with our kids and then send them out into the world, take that kitchen table right downtown and plant that right on Main Street and figure out how do we... <sighs> I don't know. I'm messing it up. What can I say? It's hard. It's hard week. I'm sorry for us and for you. Yeah. I don't have any other transition here, Sam. There's nothing, nothing helpful at the moment. You know, it's, a country is something you make as you go, and we can't stop making it. And we've got to think hard, and I shouldn't say this. I told the 930, I wouldn't tell you this at the 11, because this is going to live online now for a minute. I was a poli science undergrad, and uh, I have now real misgivings around appointments that last deep into senility and deep into the end of your life. No Western civilization in the world sets people up to make ultimate decisions until they're dead. It just doesn't make sense, and we've got we to do some thinking, guys. There's a massive gap between how... Who, who sees the future and who gets to say what the future is. There's a huge gap between where we are as a people and the people who are making these decisions for us, and we have to reconcile this. We can't get lazy now. We can't tune it out. We've got to dial it in. It feels like things are changing, and so let's hold each other tight right now. Can we do that? And wordlessly, men, please. Ironic. Now I've got a bunch of words to bring you. Can I quit? Reagan, Reagan can I just quit? Uh, let's do this. Let's have, uh, let's have some of, you know, I don't, I don't know. Here, does somebody want to read? Reagan, read my notes, please. Julie, Dr. Julie, come read my notes. Yeah, and there's terrifying other things going on this week, too. Like, we, we're pulling on stories that are the, literally the fabric of our childhood, and I don't do this lightly, you guys, and so I just don't really feel like being here right now. I'd rather be watching cars or motorcycles go around in circles. So, so uh, 
but I love you, and I love being your pastor, and we have to push forward. And so, welcome to part two of a series that I've t- entitled, Wait What? Bible Stories for Grown-Ups. It doesn't go at all with the week. But I don't know about you, uh, I don't know if you listened last week to what we talked about in terms of the Garden of Eden and creation poetry or creation mythology, the creation story, whatever you want to call it. I don't know about you, but I'm already having fun with this stuff. We swerve into all our good ideas half by accident. You know, we were the kind of kids on a road trip where no one ever planned for a hotel or a restaurant to go to. We were just like, oh, that looks good. We would pull in there. Some really bad things happened. And then some decent things once in a while. But I don't know that we planned to get to this conversation, but here we are, and I'm super excited about it. I wonder if you tuned in last week. I wonder if it initiated any additional conversations throughout your week. I hope that it did. It did for me with a bunch of people that I'm not generally in conversation with. But there seems to be a collective yearning to say, let's just get honest about some of these things. And what I'm really hoping, here's my secret agenda, if you must know, I'm hoping that this initiates interesting and exciting conversations with your children now. I hope your little wide-eyed tinies, which is just another way of referring to your kids, mine aren't so tiny anymore, but I hope that we are able to have some interesting conversations with our kids right now. You see, these conversations, especially the way and the posture in which I'm hoping I hope we're having them, we're choosing to have them. They've been a long time coming for me. These have been in the closet like a set of old skis that haven't been cool in 30 years, and I just, but these conversations have been cooking slowly, and it feels liberating to have them finally in the open air, so I hope you enjoy them. I resisted for years a total rethink or a reset or reboot or whatever you want to call it of some of these stories. I didn't want to risk upsetting the faithful in the pews. You see, we always live with this gap between academy and pew. And we don't want to mess things up for people for no, for no redemptive reason. But I'm suddenly aware of something that I hadn't calculated until just now in my life. The cost of doing nothing, the cost of saying nothing. I guess that does connect in the news this week, doesn't it? There is a cost associated with saying nothing. There is, as it turns out, a very high cultural cost associated with not naming what's awkward when everyone sees that it's awkward. Of not saying something is unbelievable when it's clearly unbelievable. There's a high price to pay if we don't do that, if we're not willing to do that. We have no need to call anything meaningless or arcane or useless or stupid or wrong, but grown-ups can name things as they are, and I hope that we are becoming grown-ups now. Think about it. There's a cost associated with inaction and indecision. My very dear friend Pablo, who's also from Argentina, Emil, you just need to know that so you feel safe right now. There's another Argentine person in our conversation. But my friend Pablo reminded me of something this week. We were talking down by the river. He says, it's only the most sophisticated organizations that are willing to and able to calculate the cost of inaction. Most of us can sit around and tabulate numbers. If we go left, this will happen. If we go right, that'll happen. But what is the cost associated with saying nothing? Only the most sophisticated organizations can calculate that. We have to square up to the sometimes wince-worthy stories of our faith I think it's essential that we do it. If we don't, if we don't question the unbelievable things, we will pay a high price. Let me see if I can name it for you and see if this resonates with you. Often, not always, but often, the price will be a lasting injury to the imagination of our children. They know what's awkward and what isn't. Ask a five-year-old how many animals on earth will fit in a wooden boat and watch them go. That silence, that, unabil- that inability to name it, say it, address it, and just see, that has a cost. You know what happens next? They look at everything we say and they go, think about this, guys, those of you who are raising little tiny people. The injury happens at the level of their imagination. We have to be courageous to name the weirdness, the contradictions, the built-in contradictions. We have to be courageous to name things that are unbelievable, to say things are pieces of stories that shaped our faith, and yet we're not sure how it actually worked. We have to be willing to name that. 
If we don't find a way to be courageous to state the obvious, then their imagination will drift and most likely land on more intellectually coherent sciences. Happens right on cue, often freshman year in college. They will land on things that don't have to keep big secrets about the facticity or historicity or the believability of things. They might be a tiny bit uncomfortable to hear what I'm about to say right now, but I think that you should at least consider that I'm possibly right. I want to tiptoe delicately here. I want to say this next idea with compassion, with tenderness. Perhaps you raised your children in what turned out to be an echo chamber of agreement and fundamentalist indoctrination. Yes, I'm talking about Christian education. Perhaps you patronized Christian schools that failed to teach real science and philosophy, and then perhaps you followed your, furthered your investment by sending the, spending the fortune that it costs us all to send them to private parochial Christian colleges and universities. Maybe you did that. Perhaps you did this because you thought that it was the best thing for your kids, and maybe it was. I'm not denigrating that. I was Christian school raised, with the exception of my undergraduate degree, all the way through too. But hear me now, if you were convinced that you were raising your kids sheltered from ideas that might challenge an overly simplistic biblical literalist worldview in order to protect their faith, it's unlikely that it worked. It's just not likely it worked. At some point, I'm all but certain, they picked up on the silence with which our evangelical faith treated the academic, open-minded pursuit of knowledge. They picked up on it. They saw it. I don't mean to be unkind. I was educated in Christian schools. In fact, I come from a long pedigree of all Christian school teachers. Didn't do me a ton of good, but whatever. I intend no insult here, friend. But if you sheltered your children with great attention to detail, you know, monitoring music and movies and literature and friendships and thought and books and theology and all the things, if you did that, they still found their way straight to the disruptive material that made church seem brittle, if not dishonest altogether, right on cue. Just like you did and just like I did. Not having these hard conversations, friend, open-minded, science-driven conversations about the roots, the ancient roots of our faith, hasn't really protected much, has it? On the contrary, it has cost us something if we're willing to admit it. But here's the good thing. It's never too late. It's, it's an enduring principle of the cosmos, it seems to me, that there's always time to begin again. As long as we are able to sit up and take nourishment, which means as long as you're alive, it's not too late to update and upgrade and reboot and initiate hard conversations with kids and tell ourselves better stories that find more beautiful details than the things we've been stuck on for a lifetime. So today I want to talk about, no surprise, the great flood in Noah's Ark. How important is this story in your faith? Look up. Look straight up. Beyond the lights. What do you see? Literally, look up. People are in church are funny. You tell them to look up, and they're like, wait, is this a joke? Just, just look up, y'all. Just look up. What do you see up there? What do you see? Somebody describe what you see. Wood. What's that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like the inside hull of a ship, specifically Noah's Ark. You guys, the connection between the church and the story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood is so intense that we've given the shaping of our ideas to the architects this time. You see, humble theologians will, will, will tell you straight up, it's the architects who always win. What you surround someone with often speaks much louder than what you tell them while they're seated listening to what you say. These buildings are designed to look like this for a reason. There's a very ancient connection to the story that we're going to consider today. This particular ancient story has been so important to Christians historically that our buildings are built around it. And of course, that's a litmus test for the things that we truly believe. Historically, as I've read this week and pieced this all back together, there has been nothing more vigor vigorously defended within Orthodox Christianity than the Great Flood, the literal way it's accounted for in Genesis and Noah's Ark. Nothing has been more vehemently and vigorously defended. 
Now again, you're going to hear me repeat this uh, uh, during this sermon series, but it all goes sideways for us when empire-minded Gentile churchmen of the 3rd and 4th century began to tell us that this is literally how it happened because this is literally the words that God wrote down. This is when it begins to get sideways. So we're going to need to do some work and keep this in mind that this story wasn't always seen exactly like this. These were epic stories about a deity who was deeply involved in the creative work of their imagination, their active imagination, long before it was an eyewitness account and read that way. That's what it originally was, and I will remind us of that faithfully. The fact is, more money and effort have been spent defending a literal reading of Genesis, the Genesis account of Noah and the Great Flood, than any other single story in our Christian tradition. It's the most defended one of all. There seems to be a sense among evangelicals that if they lose this argument that the entire Christian faith will implode right beneath their fearful, anxious, defensive feet. So here's a little secret, no extra charge for this today. I'll throw this in for free. Anytime someone tells you the whole thing will fall apart if you ask one hard question, just know you're looking at fear. Just know you're looking at fear. I call this the Dr. James Dobson effect. Do you remember when he went to air screeching that if the Equality of Marriage Act passes, it will be the end of the American family as we know it? Do you remember that? Such a lovely bit of vitriol. Yeah, Reagan remembers that. Yeah. Yeah, Reagan's, Reagan's in politics, and I'm looking right at her. I can see not very far, but I can see you, Reagan. I remember that. We're an embarrassing thing. That, well, let me ask you this. Did your family come to an end because somebody down the street could finally get married? Was this the end of your family? Take this to the bank, friend. Anytime someone says, don't ask any questions or else the whole thing falls apart, just, ask, just start asking questions. Just start writing them down. They'll be good questions. Here's my advice to you. Question people who tell you not to ask questions. We know this. We should know this. We all raise these little kids, these little crumb crunchers, do nothing but ask questions for years. Ask questions of the people that tell you not to ask questions. Those threats are based in fear, usually in the fear that the person screeching with the microphone might actually lose the world that they think that they control, also the world that the gospel already undermined anyway. So that's free advice. And for whatever reason, fundamentalist Christians have pulled out all stops to defend this literal global flood that occurred exactly as, according to them, described in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Millions of dollars are raised and spent every year hunting down evidence to prove that a wooden ship carried every single living organism on earth on board during a 40-day and 40-night rainy ordeal. And as you might imagine, for biblical literalists, being able to claim that their story, the Old Testament's version of Noah and the flood and all the things, that their story came first, that's the claim that they, they cannot let go of. It's a very important claim to hold on tightly if you read the Bible literally. But Noah didn't. Come first, that is. The Epic of Gilgamesh, many of you read this in college, you weren't told about this in church, but you probably found this at university. The Epic of Gilgamesh came first by nearly a thousand years before Genesis. I don't know if you know this. It's a story about the life of a wild man named Gilgamesh, who was king of a place called Uruk, who in the effort to understand immortality while grieving the death of a friend named Enkidu, he went to the end of the known world to interview a man who was supposedly given eternal life. This man, his name would be a great name for a dog, in case you need a name for a dog, Utnapishtim was this man's name. Fantastic. What's your dog's name? Utnapishtim. Well, he tells Gilgamesh of a flood that, that he had survived by some miracle. He was in earshot of the gods while they discussed wiping out humanity, and he overheard the secret of how someone might survive. And so he builds a boat, and he puts all his animals and his family on the boat, and he survives. The story of Utnapishtim that comes to us from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, according to this story, the gods had grown weary of earthly shenanigans, so water was what they chose to reset all things. 
The dimensions of the vessel were different than Noah's, and the time frame in which it was built was also different, but the story is structurally so similar, it feels impossible to me to accept that they, that they weren't retelling some of the same story. When archaeological evidence surfaced around the time Texas became a place, 1849, sometime in the 1850s, when the evidence of the Epic of Gilgamesh surfaces, those tablets containing all of this story, a far more ancient account than anything Genesis pretends to aim at us, you can imagine the fundamentalists were absolutely hair-on-fire panicked. And they organized immediately and scrambled to discredit it immediately. And that's when things got worse. Turns out the Epic of Gilgamesh wasn't even the first story of a Mesopotamian or Sumerian uh, flood in the region that wiped out humanity. There was an older one even still called the Atrahasis. I don't know if you've read this one. It tells an alternative story of creation, not unlike Genesis, but different, and a flood that wiped out humanity because they were acting up. And it predates the Epic of Gilgamesh by many, many years, according to most experts. Considerably older, but weirdly similar. So I'm just going to tell it to you as straight as I can. There's no way Genesis came first. Most likely not even second. But how does that impact the story of Noah and the Great Flood? Now, some of you have been trained to think and say and respond exactly right now, at this moment, preacher, you're messing with the dating. Genesis was clearly first the Bible says so, and your argument's not very great anymore. But you can point out the websites that are compiled and curated specifically to refute any idea that challenges the authority of Genesis as an eyewitness textbook. But think about the logic in that. You ready for another secret? Again, this one's for free. Trust actual scientists when it comes to dating things. Don't trust theologians that masquerade as hard scientists that got their science degree from a Christian university. Don't trust them when it comes to dating things. They're pushing an agenda. I don't care whose sacred text they're defending. Just give me the agnostic atheist scientist sometimes. Let's just talk about the date of a thing. That's another bit of free advice. You see, so that what I'm saying is that the Genesis account cannot claim to be authoritative based on age alone. It wasn't the first or the last story of a massive flood that destroyed known civilization. Not only does Gilgamesh write about, or the Epic of Gilgamesh write about a flood in Mesopotamia, but legends of diluvial stories, flood stories, turn up in, as, in many, many organ, uh, organic cosmologies around the world. Of course they do. We are homo sapiens sapiens, of course, and we come up with stories to make meaning for things that we don't understand. And long before we understand the principles of hydrology or the cyclical behavior of bodies of water, especially when affected by, I don't know, melting ice caps or things of that nature, of course we're going to add meaning and tell stories before we know how things actually work. So what does any of this mean? Do we have to throw it all out, this lovely story of a boat and a man and some animals? Because it most likely wasn't original material, do we have to discard it? Does it discredit the rest of the Bible or Christianity in any way? Well, I would say it fatally wounds biblical literalism, that's for sure. But that's unsustainable for countless reasons now. Noah's flood was a borrowed story, appropriated and adapted within a considerable literary license to speak to Hebrew concerns and fears. And I think we can admit this as grown-ups without any way abandoning the beauty of the story. And that's what I hope to accomplish today. So hang on, if you need to, hang on to the literal reading of Noah in Genesis. If that feels best to you, hold tightly to it. You certainly wouldn't be alone in that. Most of church history has seen it that way. Don't touch it if that feels right, but I'm just going to confess to you today, it doesn't feel right to me anymore. Acknowledging the universal nature of this story and how it pops up in all these places is a beautiful way to accept that God is involved in places and spaces that go way beyond our tribal experience. That it's never not been true, we've just been slow to admit it. What could be true about us if we held our story with great deep respect, but also with great humility that says it's probably not the only telling of a story like this? I don't really care which story came first, if I'm honest. That's not all that interesting to me. What is interesting is where the stories diverge. 
where Noah's story is different because if we can figure that out, it might tell us the reason the ancients wrote this down to begin with. And we talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. Cosmovisions build. They're like cities. They build on each other, right? They evolve. They accumulate. They add to previous ideas and morph and grow and become clearer over time, not unlike wine, not unlike motorcycles, not unlike people. How does the great flood, as it appears in Genesis, reveal something fresh, something new, something compelling to add to what was already understood about the nature of God? Now we're beginning to ask, to me, I think, questions that matter. How does it add to what could have been understood at the time? Well, mythological stories about cataclysmic floods generally followed a simple structure. You know what it is. The gods regret making humans all together, or God regrets making humans all together, so they're determined to destroy them all to start over again, and they choose water to do it because these noisy people, these tedious people, had somehow become displeasing. Now, Genesis certainly follows exactly that framework, but it innovates profoundly in the end if you can hear it. So we're going to read it now in a second, but first, a little bit of context. The first several verses of Genesis 6 do exactly what I just described. They tell how God grew weary of having made people, so God regrets. But then in verse 8, Genesis mentions a man named Noah who had somehow found favor with God. We're not sure how. But by verse 14, God is literally dictating, according to the text, instructions to Noah on how to build a boat that would somehow preserve a selective remnant, how they might survive this watery reset. So we'll pick up there. Chapter 6, verse 17, and I'll just read. This will be familiar. reads this way. For my part, and this presumes to be God speaking in the text, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into, come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. you shall be, they shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping things, oh, I love the creeping things, according to their kinds, all of that, you, you, you know how that goes. Two of every kind will come into you to keep them alive. Verse 21. And also with you, uh, every kind of food that is eaten and store it up and also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7 will go on to tell uh, what happens next. It'll be familiar. Lots of numbers, numbers of days. I don't know if you knew this, but Noah was claimed to have lived for almost a thousand years. Then there's numbers of breeding pairs of animals and such, and we don't have time to read it all. And I, I know that you know the structure of the story. Anyway, the water rises, then it recedes, and birds come to save the day. They fly to discover re-emerging dry land. So what do we have here? Why would the ancient Hebrews write down their vision of a much older epic story? What does this tell us about the evolution of human understanding, at least for them, about the nature of God and the nature of the cosmos? What's new here? Remember, this is epic Hebrew poetry, mostly. Poetry about the who and the why of the cosmos. You can't tug on this material hard enough, friends, to transform it into a literal eyewitness account of an actual event. You can't. We've tried. It never made much sense. This, like most poetry in almost all cultural contexts, is designed to expand existing understandings about the nature of things. Honestly, its first innovation, in my view, is related to describing a single deity pulling the strings, not just a pantheon of gods feeling frustrated with humanity. Also notice, if you read it well, the tenderness with which God treats the family of Noah and the creatures of the good earth. It's a beautiful story. It's a poem. Biblical literalists take this as fact, which brings up a whole bunch of problems, and I will only mention a few. For example, if you look closely enough, you'll notice, much like Genesis 1 and 2 are two completely different accounts, put one after the other sequentially in the New Testament, there's actually two very different stories woven into Genesis here. But unlike Genesis 1 and 2, it, 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 they're not kept 
separate and just put together. They're kind of woven together, so it's not super easy to know how to navigate them. Here's what I offer you as evidence. If you read it carefully, you'll notice that in one place, uh, Noah is commanded to take a single mating pair of each animal, and then later he's told to take seven mating pairs and one clean, and, or seven clean and one unclean. And that's a clever time stamp from a, a, a much later time because there were no clean or unclean animals yet. This is 50 generations before Abraham and Moses and all of this next stuff would happen. And in one place, it talks about 40 days and 40 nights, then it mentions 150 days in another verse or two. There's no internal harmony of the details here that would support a literal reading of this. This is a collection of reflections about a flood that must have lingered in their memory. Also, was this a global flood? Oh, of course not, friend. (laughs) The earth wasn't known even to be a globe for millennia. Their world was flat. And humans were not very mobile at the time. And it was before Internet Explorer, which died this week, I guess. The entirety of the whole world to people at the time would have been what lied between the mountains and the sea or what lied between the two rivers of their experience. This wasn't a global flood. There's no fossil evidence of that that I can say, that I can say I believe. But I would argue that admitting these details that I've just mentioned, these problems that biblical literalists have to defend against, this doesn't diminish this story in any way. It's just being honest about the details of an ancient thing. But what if you're a biblical literalist? Then I'd say you have some explaining to do. I suppose you have to somehow make the case that the whole earth was covered with enough water to completely submerge all the mountain ranges the way Genesis claims, which is problematic, to say the least. That's certainly what I was told as a kid. In fact, I was told that the entire fossil record, all life forms preserved in sedimentary rock that we can observe now for hundreds of feet, I was told that all of that was created by a massive compression of Noah's flood which never explained why specimens appear within narrow variety, narrow strata varieties in, in the rock itself. I always ask Dad, where are the giraffes next to the trilobites? Could never show me. I could take you to a place in Illinois. I could look at 400 vertical feet of sedimentary rock, and the variety is so predictable, it's shocking. There are no complex life forms that deep. Never had an answer for that. When I inquired, because I often did, because you know me, I was given some pseudo-sophisticated accounting of how the Genesis floodwaters could could affect hundreds of feet of limestone, for example. And then I was told silly things like, maybe God made it to look old to fool scientists because we should be reading the Bible more. That's a quote. What I was never helped to understand was the natural result of such massive compression of life above the waterline. Now think about this as a scientist for just a second. Scientists say that it would take something like five times the amount of vol- the volume of water currently in the seas and the oceans. It would take five times more of that to to cover the mountain ranges, as we're told in Genesis. That's a lot of water. And you say, preacher, no, 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 the, bi- the text is clear. It was global. Well, you see, with that much water, if we assume that this was a literal set of details, that much pressure would crush all of life above and below the waterline, including Noah and his family and their floating zoo. This couldn't have been a global phenomenon, friend. It wouldn't have needed to for them to claim it was the whole world. Think about the breadth and depth of human experience at the time. And then there's the problem of getting every living thing on a single boat I've been told, well, they did it in DNA form. We still don't really know how to handle DNA, to be honest. Yeah. Or whatever form of microscopic life could have existed in bloodstreams to rebuild, you know, these species that don't adapt or evolve or anything. It it all began to feel somewhat silly to me, and I think that it lost the size of the story because it misplaced the point. Don't forget, storytelling is supposed to expand our notions of the cosmos. When the bard, or Shakespeare, if you're not a soft science major, when the bard says the brightness of her cheek would shame the stars, are we talking about stars with emotions and faces and eyes? (laughs) Or when F. Scott Fitzgerald writes her voice is full of money, are we tracking with the writer? 
what they're trying to describe. Friend, this story is about so much more than a certain amount of days, hear me deeply, or acre feet of water, or however many breeding pairs were included, or how the lions were somehow convinced that it wasn't a traveling cruise with an outstanding buffet. Dad joke. Had to put the dad joke in there. Perhaps the rivers flooded. Of course they would have. Perhaps the sea surged because of glacial melt. Perhaps this is a story still kicking around in oral tradition for, left over from the last major ice age, and it's, and it's melting. The physical details and the precise accounting of supposed facts embedded in this story are not even what matters most in my view. Now see if you can shift from all the complexity now to see what I see. This is a story of a deity who preserved what they loved. A deity who never gives up on their creative material unfolding. This is a very human, if you will allow me to say that, story of a God who is showing restraint. So much restraint that they enter into binding agreements. They called them covenants. They didn't know what covenants were at the time. This is, this is a story of a God who enters willingly, willingly of their own volition into binding agreements to never destroy again but to preserve. Why, friend? Why would we ever let go of such a beautiful story of God's patience and love and willingness to begin again? Our God resets all the time begins again all the time. This is way too good of a story to set aside just because it may not be what we were taught it was. Jews, Muslims, Christians all trace their lineage to Noah, and that's why this matters. I wonder if you let that detail sink in where that might take you. So this final thought, don't move yet, musicians. I'll give you another final thought in a minute. This version of this ancient story was recorded for posterity by a particular tribe of people, don't forget. And at that point in the development of human consciousness, the Hebrews told stories of a God who loved them, mostly them, well, perhaps only them. This was a God that hated their enemies, naturally. Of course it was. It was as far as the human consciousness could go, a tribal God that's looking after our well-being. This is their story. Notice the genealogy that we all skip over in chapter 5. The people of Genesis, the, the story of Genesis was written specifically to trace the lineage of the people in the audience who were supposed to receive this written code and say, this is where meaning comes from. It isn't a commentary about the rest of the world. This is about them. These are family photos we're looking at, which changes how I read it. We made this material ours generations later, don't forget. But it was theirs, and this was a story about a God who was willing to begin again, to recreate a world for them to be alive in. This is the story of a God who gently whispers to them, I've made a world, a brand new world for us to explore together. And I promise I will never again act with impunity and vengeance. Oh, church, I wonder if you can see it now. This is a story of divine restraint. Of course, this is a story of epic things. They all were, but this is the story of God's coming of age. Hear me, of the moment God moved from anger to everlasting promise and protection. Let the beauty of that idea quicken you, inspire you, let that remake you now. That's why this story matters. That's why I will not abandon it or any of the pillars of the faith that we hold so dear. I'll hold it differently, but I'm not going to walk away. This story matters. In Genesis 12, we'll see Abraham enter the picture, and he'll dominate the story for most of the rest of the book. And that's when the moment, that's the first moment we catch wind of this universal covenant to bless all the families of the world. But just for a moment now, just for a moment, let this be what it is. For just this moment, this is a story about Noah and the whole world that, this, that these readers would have traced their lineage to. It'll be universal, but now, just for now, let this be about their family line, their tribe. That's okay, let it be that. Because it starts there. You'll never understand who we are until you understand who you are. It will always begin with God's approach and God's preservation of you. What a beautiful story of God's becoming. 
And if that thought doesn't alarm you, then you're deep, deep, deep in the throes of faith deconstruction, at least as it relates to American evangelicalism. Welcome to the, to the club. Friends, the problem with these ancient stories is the way we've been taught to hold them, not the stories themselves. So when your wide-eyed tiny looks up at you with hard questions, take them to poetry, take them to metaphor, to timeless epic tales of rain and storms and wooden vessels and the love that God had for families and the love that God had for everything on the, on, on the good earth. Mostly, take them to the story of a God who's self-restrained. Take them to the moment God promised to preserve us all. Let that work on their little imaginations. That's a story that they'll hang on to, even when they're grown-ups.